Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I thought about um, and how interesting that we're bringing the, the Gospel of John series to a close today with a message called Reunion. I thought about um, coming onto the platform to the, the song Reunited by Peaches and Herb. Some of you older folks will remember that song, but I decided against it. I don't know how you feel about this word reunion. Is it a positive word for you? Is it a word that evokes weird memories? How many of you went to your high school reunion? Keep your hands up if you enjoyed it. Okay. How many of you went to your spouse's high school reunion? I don't think anyone enjoyed that, right? I mean, that's, that's just messed up. <clears throat> reunion is kind of one of those words with mixed feelings, isn't it? Tomorrow, I'm flying to Philadelphia, and I'm going to spend a week there with five of the people that are closest to me in this life. It's become an annual tradition. Uh, It has been over the last 25 years. I've met every year with the same group of five men. We're all pastors. We've all grown up together. We got saved around the same time. We have walked with each other, sharpened each other. And so that's a reunion that I very much look forward to every year. That week I spend with these guys where I lay bare my heart, where I talk about my triumphs and my failures, where I invite them to say the things to me that no one else on earth will probably ever say to me. That's a precious time for me. I think I'm a different man because I've had that group. I'm thankful that here at home, I'm surrounded by men who play a very similar role in my life. Every month we get together for our elders' meetings, and you might not think that an elders' meeting would be something you look forward to, but I really, really love our elders' meetings. It's just a reminder to me that there are other men who deeply love Christ and the church the same extent that I do, and it spurs me on. So there are reunions that I love, that I look forward to and relish. But there are other reunions that maybe are not as uh, happy an occasion. I don't know if you've ever really blown it with someone, done something that was so selfish and hurtful, and you know it. There's no excuse. It's your, you know, like when, when you have a really hard foul in the NBA, and then the, right away the guy goes, yeah, that was me. I'll own that one. My bad. You've had one of those moments where you know you hurt someone. Never mind extenuating circumstances. There's really no excuse for what you did to hurt that person. I've had moments like that in my life, even with people here at this church, where as I drove in on Sunday and saw their familiar car in the parking lot, it felt like a stone had settled in my stomach. This person that I, I really care about, and then a fresh remembrance of regret, shame, guilt over what I did to hurt them. And I didn't look as much forward to seeing those folks, not because they did something bad to me, 
but because it was hard for me to see them and remember my own frailty and failings. Last Sunday at Easter, we celebrated that Jesus rose from death. And if you've ever buried someone that you love, you can just for a second imagine how profound the relief and joy would be if the person you thought you'd lost suddenly reappeared in your life. I think Peter was as happy as everyone else when he saw Jesus again. But I also think that for Peter, there was a certain amount of heaviness that came with that reunion. And I think it's very possible to have those legitimately, genuinely mixed emotions about the same occasion. It's possible to be overjoyed to see someone and to feel the dread weight of shame and regret at the same moment. So I've got to imagine that when Peter heard Jesus was back, there was a bit of a storm going in his heart. Jesus had told the disciples, go to Galilee and wait for me there. I'll visit you again. He had already visited them twice after the resurrection in Jerusalem. He had encouraged them. He had invited them to touch the scars, the wounds, to know for sure that he had actually risen from death. It was really him in the flesh back from the dead. Now they find themselves in Galilee, just as he has said, and he was going to visit them again. And that's where we pick up the text in John 21. This is the text with which John brings his gospel letter to a close. And we find Peter and six of the other disciples in Galilee waiting because that's what Jesus told them to do. And Peter, never being one to sit around and reflect, said after a while, I'm going to go fishing. I'm not going to sit around here and just wait. I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to, I have to do something. I, I, I don't want to encourage too much conjecture about what was going on in people's minds. But you get a picture of this guy, Peter, throughout the Gospels. And I'm just kind of thinking, he's antsy, not just because he's waiting, but because he's waiting for something that he both longs for and dreads at the same time. And so he's going to do something he knows how to do well. So he goes fishing. The other guy's like, oh. Us too. We're not going to sit around either. So they're all on a boat all night fishing and catching nothing. And that's where John picks up the narrative here. And in the rest of this chapter, John records for us the beautiful story of the reconciliation and restoration of Peter in the wake of his greatest earthly failure. And in that story of reconciliation... I think we find some great news, some hope and encouragement, a great example for us to follow. And I want to point out to you two important things. In this break that happened between Jesus and Peter through Peter's betrayal of Jesus, when you look at the way Jesus restores that broken relationship, know this, many times you're going to sit in the place of Peter knowing you've screwed up. You're the one in the wrong. There's no reason anyone should forgive you. It is clear you did bad and you had no excuse. You will be in that place before God and others many times over the course of your life, as I will. And there's great news in this chapter for when you find yourself in that place of shame and regret, wondering if there's any way forward. But I also want you to know 
that you're going to find yourself in the place of Jesus many times over the course of your life. Where you're the one hurt and wronged. You're the one who others have mistreated without reason or excuse. They can't find anything that justifies what they've done other than to say, I'm sorry, I'm a failed human being. I'm a sinner. I'm flawed. I'm broken. That's the only defense I can offer you is I hurt you because that is what I know I'm capable of doing. And you will sit with the moral high ground on the other side of it, on the Jesus side of that equation, and be challenged to do something in response to the hurt that others cause you. I think there's great news in this chapter when we're on Jesus' side of conflict and betrayal as well. So I hope that regardless of which side you may find yourself on now or in the future, you will find good news through the gospel of Jesus portrayed in this beautiful story of the way Jesus himself initiates and orchestrates a restoration, a repair of the broken relationship he has with his friend Peter. Now, one thing I'm not going to talk about, which might surprise you, is the part we all have been taught since childhood. What have your parents taught you since you were a little kid to say three things, right? Please, thank you, and I'm sorry. From our earliest age, we know those are three things if you don't learn to say genuinely, you will never make it in human society. You'll have to live in a cave by yourself if you don't know how to say and mean those three things. So it goes without saying that if you have sinned against someone, or someone has sinned against you, that somewhere along the way, a heartfelt, genuine apology, an owning of what has been done, not defending, not explaining away, just a flat out saying, I am sorry that I did that to you. Not a sideways apology like, I'm sorry you feel that way. I'm sorry you're hurt. I'm sorry you're angry. But I'm sorry, period. If that apology, that true owning of sin and culpability never happens, reconciliation is not possible. You can forgive someone without an apology, but you can't restore that relationship without a true apology. It's not possible. So it goes without saying, and that's why I won't say it, I'm assuming that we all accept that a true apology, an owning, a confession, and a spirit of repentance is required to repair a broken relationship. But having assumed that that is important, I want to point out some other things that Jesus demonstrates that we learn from this chapter that are so important to finalizing the repair of broken relationships when one person has clearly done wrong to another. Does that make sense to you? So if you don't hear me mention say sorry, that's because I'm assuming There's no moving forward to the next steps apart from that. And I believe that that happened. But what else can we see in the way Jesus beautifully restores Peter to himself? First thing I want to point out is that Jesus teaches us to approach even when everything in us says, I'd rather avoid. Let that sink in for a second. When we have done something wrong to another person, isn't it strange that our own instinct, our own impulse is to avoid that person? When I, I remember one particular conflict that 
was because of something that my wife and I had said to a person that was really hurtful. It was said in a moment of anger. Should never have been said. And this is somebody who wasn't just anyone to us. It's somebody we deeply loved. And I remember seeing the hurt in their face. Hearing it expressed verbally, the deep disappointment. It was really hard. I will be honest, for months after that, this person sat in the same place every Sunday. You'd be surprised how much a preacher notices in the room. There's not one of you who can close your eyes without me seeing. You see the whole room. And so it's not like all I see is faces in a sea. We're not that big. And I saw this person every Sunday like this. Looking at me while I preach. And I'm here trying to speak for God knowing that I'm a terrible person. And I would be lying if I didn't say to you that I studiously avoided that side of the room for months. I'm not proud of that, but I'm telling you in confession, it was hard for me to look at that side of the room. He had a very distinctive car, parked it in the same spot, and every Sunday I'd be in a good mood, I'd drive him, I'd go, oh yeah, I forgot, I'm a terrible human being. And that rock would settle in my stomach, I would, I would get evites to parties, and I would see that that person was also going to be there, and I would really think twice about whether I could muster the will to go to a social gathering where the person I'd hurt would also be there. I justified it in my mind as I don't want to ruin their party. I don't want to get in their way, but it was really more about my inability to face my own failure, my own regret. So what I love about Jesus is that these guys who have been so close to him, in whose lives he had done nothing but pour out and give, on the darkest night of his life, they all scattered like roaches when the lights come on. Not one of them stayed true. They all ran for their lives out of fear and abandoned him. Only one person died that night. Only one person got arrested. Everybody else ran. And yet, Jesus never stops being Emmanuel. God with us. If he hadn't made the first move to approach them, I don't know that they ever could have approached him with their backs held straight. See, in conflict, especially when one person has clearly failed another, the most natural impulse is to avoid, not to approach. But there is tremendous power when one of those two people Ashley decides to cross the room. You see it in romantic relationships where one person has hurt the other. Sometimes all it takes to begin the repair process is a simple sliding over the hand to grab the other person's hand. That's all it takes sometimes. Just that simple act of approach. Because the easiest thing is for both people to cross their arms, turn their backs to each other, and act like the other person doesn't exist. That is the easiest thing to do. The most natural thing to do. You've been there before the Cold War in the house. Whether it's between parents and children, friends, roommates, husband and wife. 
where you just, you're like making a sandwich and you're like, and you act like that. It's so awkward because the person's there and you've killed them by ignoring them. You're murdering them through neglect. That's what you're doing. I see that you're in the room, but you are dead to me. Even when you bump into you, you studiously avoid saying, I'm sorry or excuse me. You just, boom. What? You're laughing because you've all been there, haven't you? And everything in you says, don't give them an inch. Don't give them the satisfaction. That is not the spirit of God at all. There's another spirit at work there who delights in human division and conflict. Who delights in fueling the fire of hatred and pain. And that is not the spirit of God at all. Jesus could have avoided these guys and said, Hey, you know what? You guys flunked the final. I'm finding 12 new boys. Why would I take you guys? You flunked. Instead, he finds them in Galilee, just as promised. And he calls out to them while they're fishing. And he knows. Hey, seasoned veteran fishermen, did you catch anything all night? No. Now, usually fishermen don't appreciate fishing advice from some guy on the shore. But he goes, hey, why don't you try throwing the net on the other side? Oh, yeah, duh. I'm sure that'll take care of everything. But they do it. And 153 fish jump into the net. Commit fish suicide. Boom, they come in. And all of a sudden, John goes, wait a minute. Remember Luke chapter 5? Of course, he didn't have Luke chapter 5. But remember another time on the same lake when this same scene played out where we knew who it was because of the catch of fish. On that occasion, so many fish came in that the boats were in danger of sinking. And John, see, Peter's always the first to act or talk. John's always the first to see, to understand. And John goes, Peter, hold on. That's Jesus. And that's all it takes. See? And there's Jesus on the side of the shore saying, guys, it would have been easy for me to avoid you and find a new crew. But I'm beckoning you back to me. Bring those fish in. I've been cooking Add a few more fish to the grill. Come have breakfast with me. What's just as important as the fact that Jesus approached them is that Peter responded to Jesus' approach. And he approached Jesus back. The minute John said, hey, Peter, that's our Lord. Peter doesn't even hesitate. He throws on his coat and he jumps. I found a picture. I didn't put it on here. I found this hilarious picture on 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 the internet, of Peter literally Superman diving off the edge of a boat into the water. And I almost think that's the way it happened. He's like, what? And you know, Peter always acts first. Ready, fire, aim. That's Peter's way. He's jumping, he's in the water, and it says he's a football field's distance off from shore. He's a hundred yards out, and he's trying to get to shore. That's just Peter. He acts, and he goes, wait, what am I doing? But there's something powerful in that. You know when you've been in a fight with your, your mate and they're clearly wrong, but here they are trying to 
schmooze back in and they, they, they just do this during, you're watching TV and they just go. You have two choices, don't you? The most common choice is to go, <coughs> no, nice try. Not yet. You have more groveling to do. This is Mount Everest, not a bunny hill. You're just at base camp. That's the easiest thing to do. It's probably the most common reaction is that one approaches and the other withdraws again. And I'm going to tell you right now that that breaks the heart of God and it pretty much seals that relationship in the broken state. All it takes to begin is one to approach and the other to respond. You may not say a lot of words, but just the act of allowing that hand to remain on yours is a life-changing, God-honoring decision. It begins the process of repair. When we're in conflict, usually what happens instead is a big game of chicken. Who's going to move first? Who's going to break first? Who's going to bend first? And if you have two prideful people, and here's, here's the thing, okay? For the one who's the offender, shame and guilt paralyze that person. How can I? I'm the one who clearly did wrong. What right do I have to approach? I have nothing to say, no leg to stand on. I will have to approach as a beggar. The person who's offended, they have pain and anger paralyzing them. They're just as unhappy that they lost the relationship. But they're so hurt, they can't bear the thought of letting the other person too easily off the hook. And in this picture of Jesus approaching his friends, and of Peter heedlessly jumping out of a boat a hundred yards offshore, running to Jesus... What we see is the power of building bridges and not walls. Everything in you will say, keep the wall high. Don't be an idiot. Don't get hurt again. Don't get fooled again. That is not the spirit of God. And if he had that posture towards us, we would be utterly without hope. Not one of us could have shown our faces in this building today if that had been the posture of our Savior. I know 100% I could not be the guy with an over-the-ear mic standing behind a podium talking to you with the authority of God if he had not had that posture towards me. If God had not built bridges and instead built walls to keep people like me out, I'd have no hope. I'd have no standing. Remember that the next time you find yourself in the place of Peter. So sick of your own frailty. So filled with regret and shame because you swore you'd never do this again. And there you have done it again. You can't even look in the mirror. No one hates you in that moment more than you hate yourself. And you can't imagine that God would ever want To have you stand in front of him again. You picture him. Eyes rolling saying again. With this. Remember this picture. 
that even then, when you've given up on yourself, we serve a God who approaches when he could avoid. That's at the heart of who he is. It's why he was called Emmanuel, God with us. We learn another important thing about how broken relationships get repaired by the way Jesus interacted with Peter. You know the famous conversation where he asked Peter three questions, the same three questions, obviously to match the three denials. And a lot has been made of the particular words, the way words change. I've really looked deeply into that, and I don't think there's as much there as people like to see. I think the greater part of that story is not in finally dissecting every word, but zooming out and understanding what Jesus is actually doing with Peter. The second thing I want to draw your attention to is that Jesus focuses on his relationship with Peter, not on the thing Peter did to break it. That doesn't mean that the thing Peter did was irrelevant, unimportant, not hurtful. It was the greatest defining failure of Peter's life. It would be easy to dwell, to park the car right there and say, that's all I want to talk about is what you did to me. See, Jesus doesn't just approach the group. He singles Peter out. In fact, they take a walk down the beach. A lot of good things happen on walks down beaches. But I've got to imagine that as Peter Here's Jesus. You know, they're having breakfast. It's kind of tense because you know that, like, there's this elephant in the room. We still haven't had the talk. The one I know has to happen. Peter knows you don't do something like that to your best friend and then just act like nothing happened. You don't get to just skate, coast, ignore history. Those kinds of breaks have to be dealt with. The reason some relationships never really recover is because both parties are too scared to go there and they just say time will heal all wounds. Time does nothing. Leave a stain. I I learned this as a young man because Jeannie will attest. Every time I wear a light color shirt, I spill food on myself. That's why I have six Tide pens on my person at all times. If you ever spill on yourself, ask me. I got a Tide pen on me. And what I learned as a young man is I would spill at a restaurant, like whatever, I'll throw in the laundry. I didn't know that the longer you leave a stain, it sets. I'm like, what does that mean? It means it won't ever come out. I learned this the hard way when I was at Big Bowl in Deerfield, and I um, spilled dark chocolate sauce for my dessert onto my light khakis right here. These are the only khakis I'd ever bought in my life. That fit me off the shelf with no alterations. They were precious to me. I was with six other friends, and I said, excuse me. And I went to the bathroom with my tie pin, and I went to work. I got a a paper towel, soap. I came out with a giant wet spot, (laughs) roughly the size of a pea stain. And I walked into this restaurant. There's no way around. I'm like, yeah, I know what it looks like. So what? I saved the pants. I even thought about wearing them. I still own them. See, people think that if you just leave it, ignore it, time will heal. Time does nothing. It may be dull's memory, but it fixes zero. You have to go there. If you want the relationship, 
you have to go there. And Peter knew it. Jesus knew it. So when, when after they're picking the, the fish out of their teeth, Jesus goes, hey, Peter, walk with me. It's the conversation Peter longed for and dreaded at the same time. Now, it's not clear whether these three questions were asked in front of everyone or on their little one-on-one. But you'll notice a pattern in what Jesus does. If you were in the place of Jesus and someone who had clearly done you wrong was walking down the beach with you, what would you say? What would you come prepared to say to that person? Where would your focus be? Because I know where mine would be. Here would be my first words. Peter, seriously. Heck. What were you thinking? You even swore you used profanity, the third denial. Is that how little you care for me? That you'd actually cuss just to vigorously deny even knowing who I am. Is that all I meant to you? That isn't what Jesus says at all, though. In fact, instead of saying, what did you do? What were you thinking? Why did you do it? What does Jesus say? He asks for a confession, not of Peter's sin, but of Peter's love. Three times he says to Peter, hey, do you love me? The thing he'd done was self-evident. It stood like a giant boulder between them. He didn't need to draw attention to it. He began in the wisest place. He said, before we even talk about the thing you did, can we go back to the thing that matters most? Who are we to each other? Because if I'm no one to you and you're no one to me, this conversation doesn't need to happen. We just walk away and you're a memory. You're a closed chapter in my book. I wipe the the dust of you off my feet and I move on. Why are we even having this talk? It's because you and I are not just anyone. This is not a disposable relationship. Peter, you love me and I love you. That's where it starts. We begin with that. We focus on that. We build on that because if we can't at least establish that, there's no point for the rest of it to continue. Jesus does something profoundly wise here. He prompts Peter for a confession of his love, not his guilt. I'm so glad that's what Jesus decides to do. Because that's the place where every broken relationship begins to repair. It's at the place of remembering that this relationship is worth fighting for. That the reason what you did to me hurts so much is because I actually loved you. And I know you love me. And it hurts too much to think about the future without this relationship. This break between us, I can't bear it. I'm so wounded by what you did, but I'm even more wounded by this idea that we might lose what we had. And so Peter and Jesus are talking, and he says, start there, Peter. You betrayed me three times. I'm going to ask you to confess three times that I'm someone you love. He would not let their relationship be defined by or destroyed by this act of betrayal. Oh, make no mistake, that act of betrayal put a big dent in their relationship. Thank God for body shops. You don't have to throw away the car every time you get an offender bender. 
What Jesus is saying is, man, that hurt. But what you and I have, it runs deeper than one act of betrayal. It has to. It has to. Otherwise, we were lying to each other when we said things like, I love you like a brother. I would die for you. You mean everything to me. Those words were not lies just because we fail. And here's the remarkable thing about Jesus is when he asked Peter, do you love me? And this failed betrayer says three times, you know that I love you. Jesus says that's good enough for me. He accepts the claim at face value. Here's what Jesus is really saying. It is possible to love someone deeply and it's possible to betray them at the same time. We idealists, can I just admit, we're all idealists for everyone else, not just, but not for ourselves. We are always have a reason why we did what we did, but everyone else has to be perfect and flawless. And we idealists, we say, there's no way that you could have done what you've done to me and claimed to love me. There's no way. Are you kidding? Are you saying that for everyone you've loved, you have never, ever knowingly hurt them, failed them? been less than you should have been to them. If that's your claim, talk to me. I'll make you the senior pastor of this church. I'll take a break. Good Lord, I don't think there's one of us in this room who can make that claim in any relationship that means anything to us. To love and to be loved in a world of sinners comes with a price. And the price is being willing to accept that it is possible to love someone and in a moment of selfishness and weakness and fear and pride to also hurt them. That doesn't mean that the hurting of them was a part of the love. It means that I do love you, but I did sin against you. And I don't want my failure to completely define the validity of my claim that I really do love you still. What good news that when Peter confesses his love for Jesus, without any additional proof, Jesus says, if you really do love me, we can begin again. If you really do love me. And he didn't hold it against Peter and say, how could you say you love me when you did? Because only Jesus has ever loved people and not betrayed them or failed them or let them down. In a number of places in scripture, God very openly says, I forgive you because I know you're just dust. God has no illusions about our weakness. We ought to have no illusions about the weakness of every other person we've attempted to love. You cannot be loved and love in this world of sinners without grace. It's not possible. And we have to be willing to throw ourselves on the grace of Jesus when we're the ones who failed. And we have to be willing to give that grace to others when we're the ones who've been failed. Where does that find you today? It's so easy to focus 
on the things that were said and done. But the place to begin reconciliation is on a reaffirmation of this simple thing. You're someone I love, and I'm grieved that we're separated. This is worth fighting for, so I fight now. Let me give you one last thing. And that is to embrace the gift of second chances. When we've really blown it and we've failed someone, one of the things that we want the most is a second chance to make things right. I think we've all felt that. If I could just get a do-over, if I could control Z my life and get another shot at doing this right, And some things are like occasional things like, oh, if I could have a a fresh chance to wish you happy anniversary before you had to remind me. If I could just zoom back to this morning, turn around and back, go, happy anniversary, baby. I would love to have done that, but instead, over dinner, you had to remind me. So I guess happy anniversary or whatever. If you could rewind that, you could and you would. But there are other things that are more chronic regrets, like if I could raise you all over again, my precious child. If I could have high school to do all over again. If I could not date that person when I was 15. Good Lord. Even then, if we could have another chance to do it over, make it right, wouldn't we all jump at the chance? Wouldn't we? Here's the thing about life, though. That second chance doesn't always come. It's just reality. That second chance isn't always offered. But if it is, if it ever is, don't waste it. Don't make light of it. Don't grow used to second chances and squander them as if they are inexhaustible. A second chance is a gift of grace. And it's one that has to be received and embraced as a gift that is precious. With every repetition of Peter's confession of love, Jesus gives him a command. That doesn't sound like much of a gift to me. I do love you, then do this for me. I do love you, then do this for me. I do love... Can you imagine if if your kid screwed up and then you're like, hey, do you love me? Yes. Take out the trash! Do you love me? Yes. Do the dishes! That kind of sucks. I mean, it'll be like, oh, I don't love you maybe anymore because I'm too busy. Loving you is too expensive. What's Jesus doing here? Do you love me? Yes. Then do this. Do you love me? Yes. Then do. You know what he's doing is he's giving Peter the gift of reinstatement. He's saying to Peter, I could just hug you and we could be buds again, but you know that what bound us together was never just friendship. It was also being together in the same great life-defining mission. You knew who I was and why I'd come, and what bound us together, Peter, was you were meant to be in my crew. You were always meant to join me in this great work. This is everything I came to earth to do, and I had chosen you as one of 12 to join me on my team And each time Peter confesses his love, Jesus says to him, I'm taking you back. You know, some coaches, you screw up once, you sit and you ride the pine. 
One wrong pass, one drop catch, one too many fouls, and you're not going to see any playtime again. Jesus is not that kind of coach. He takes the starter's jersey and he puts it back on his friend Peter and says, there's nothing I care about more in this world than my father's glory and the people he's given me, my sheep. And I'm going to give you this gift, Peter. You're going to take care of my people again. If you read the rest of the New Testament, it's very clear Peter took it seriously. Some of the most beautiful pastoral advice ever written is written by the hand of Peter. But I imagine as Peter is confessing his love and realizing Jesus is taking him back on the team, there had to be a moment of self-doubt. Because remember, in very public ways, Peter had said in front of everyone else, I'll never betray you, even if the rest of these losers scatter and run. Not me, Lord. You know me. Come on. No, boy, I got you. These other guys, John, I mean... He knows you love him and everything, but who can count on John? Andrew, I don't know. And he's probably looking at all the guys like, you got 11 bench warmers, and you got your 18 right here. Do you know how brashly, how boldly Peter had made such claims before? And there he was, starkly reminded that words come easy, but courage and faithfulness doesn't. And so even as he's saying to Jesus, come on, you know I love you. I got to guess that somewhere in the back of Peter's mind was a little voice going, yeah, but do you really? You've said stuff like this before, Peter. Have you ever felt that? Honey, I swear, I'm going to do better. And in a moment, at that moment, everything you says, really, seriously, I want to so badly. Please let that be true of me. I don't want to do that ever again. But in the back of your mind, a voice is saying, yeah, okay. We've been down this road before. Are you sure you mean what you say this time? So Jesus gives Peter one last gift. And it comes in a really weird form. He gives Peter the gift of a prophecy about how Peter would die. He says, Peter, here's a word that you will live for three decades under the cloud of. I'm going to tell you how you're going to die. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. That was in those days a clear symbol pointing to crucifixion. And someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And in case Peter in his obtuseness missed the message, Jesus said this to, because John's like, I know Peter. He might miss the boat here. So he writes in commentary, Jesus said this, Peter, to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Now, that, again, doesn't seem like much of a gift. Hey, thanks for coming back on the team. Here's how you're going to (laughs) die. You know why that's such a gift? Because Peter was racked with self-doubt. Even as every fiber of his flesh meant what he was saying, he had done this before and failed. So Jesus says to him, Peter, for 30 years, you're going to live with this over you. That one day, you will die like I died. You will be crucified because you belong to me. You know why that was such a gift? Because what it told Peter is, you will never deny me the way you did before. 
one day you're going to be faced with a choice to deny me or to face a death as harsh and cruel as the one you saw me endure. And on that day, you will choose me and not yourself. You will die on a cross like I did when you could have every out to avoid that pain. That is how much you will return to me, Peter. I know you doubt yourself, but I'm going to give you one last gift. You will finish this earthly life faithful to me. Can you imagine what that did for Peter for those 30 years? To know that it had already been foretold. That this God who had given him a second chance would be honored for the rest of his life. The Methodist poet Rita Snowden wrote these beautiful words. You ask me what forgiveness means. It is the wonder of being trusted again by God in the place where I disgraced him. I love those words. That is what forgiveness means. It is to be trusted again in the place where we disgraced God. If you're alive and you're not living in a cave, you will be in conflict again at some point in your life. Maybe you came into church this morning steeped in this very thing. It's happening right now in your life. There's someone with whom it's hard to be in the same place. And what makes it harder is once a long time ago, you thought of that person and smiled. Your heart leapt. And today, you think of that person and a rock falls into your stomach. In every conflict, in every failing and betrayal, you will find yourself either in the place of Jesus or in the place of Peter. If you find yourself in the place of Peter, hear the good news. That with our God, failure is not final. Though you would rather avoid him, he will always approach you. And before he makes you grovel in confessing what you've done, he will ask you to confess that you truly love him. He will remind you that he truly loves you. That the reason for repairing is because the relationship is of value. He's not a God only of second chances, but a third and fourth and fifth. As long as you draw breath, you can begin again with our God. Even when you're sick of yourself, God will never be sick of you. He won't close the door. He won't turn his back. I want you to picture this. Two hands outstretched. Think what a difference this gesture is when your palms are drawn this way versus when your palms are drawn this way. When our God holds his arms out to you and you have failed, the good news is his palms are turned in. And it's a gesture of invitation, not of rejection. If you ever find yourself in the place of Jesus, the one who was wronged, who was hurt and grieved, betrayed and mistreated. 
Will you have the same grace God gives you to approach when it's much easier to avoid? Will you go to the place that you have to go to rather than letting time just smooth things over? Instead of rubbing their nose in what they've done, will you begin where Jesus begins and reestablish that this relationship is worth fighting for? That we are not just anyone to each other. I loved you once and you loved me. Let's go there again. Will you give others the same grace of a second chance that your heart cries out for when it's you who failed? If we can avail ourselves of the grace of Jesus and learn to give that grace to others, life will feel very different. Relationships that should be done can be saved. He does that for us so that we can do that with one another. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.